Chapter Fourteen of *The Last of the Plainsmen* by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. *The Last of the Plainsmen* by Zane Grey. Chapter Fourteen. All heroes but one. As we rode up the slope of Buckskin, the sunrise glinted red gold through the aisles of frosted pines, giving us a hunter's glad greeting. With all due respect to and appreciation of the breaks of the Siwash, we unanimously decided that if cougars inhabited any other section of canyon country, we preferred it, and were going to find it. We had often speculated on the appearance of the rim wall directly across the neck of the canyon upon which we were located. It showed a long stretch of breaks, fissures, caves, yellow crags, crumbled ruins, and clefts green with pinyon pine. As a crow flies, it was only a mile or two straight across from camp. But to reach it, we had to ascend the mountain and head the canyon, which indented the slope. A thousand feet or more above the level bench, the character of the forest changed. The pines grew thicker, and interspersed among them were silver spruces and balsams. Here, in the clumps of small trees and underbrush, we began to jump deer and in a few moments a greater number than I had ever seen in all my hunting experiences loped within range of my eye. I could not look out into the forest, where an aisle or lane or glade stretched to any distance without seeing a big gray deer cross it. Jones said the herds had recently come up from the breaks, where they had wintered. These deer were twice the size of the eastern species and as fat as well-fed cattle. They were almost as tame, too. Big herd ran over one glade, leaving behind several curious doves, which watched us intently for a moment, then bound off with a stiff, springy bounce that so amused me. Sounder crossed fresh trails one after another. Jude, Tig, and Ranger followed him, but hesitated often, barked and whined. Don started off once to come sneaking back at Jones's stern call. But surly old Mose either would not or could not obey, and away he dashed. Bang! Jones sent a charge of fine shot after him. He up, doubled up as if stung, and returned as quickly as he had gone. Here, you white and black coon dog, said Jones. Get him behind and stay there. We turned to the right after a while and got among shallow ravines. Gigantic pines grew on the ridges and the hollows and everywhere bluebells shone blue from the white frost. Why the frost did not kill these beautiful flowers was a mystery to me. The horses could not step without crushing them. Before long the ravines became so deep that we had to zigzag up and down their sides, and to force our horses through the aspen thickets in the hollows. Once from a ridge I saw a troop of deer and stopped to watch them. Twenty-seven, I counted outright but there must have been three times that number. I saw the herd break across the glade and watched them until they were lost in the forest. My companions, having disappeared, I pushed on, and while working out of a wide, deep hollow, I noticed the sunny patches fade from the bright slopes and the golden streaks vanish among the pines. The sky had become overcast and the forest was darkening. The wahoo, I cried out, returned in echo only. The wind blew hard in my face, and the pines began to bend and roar. An immense black cloud enveloped the buckskin. 
Satan had carried me no further than the next ridge, when the forest frowned dark as twilight, and on the wind whirled flakes of snow. Over the next hollow, a white pall roared through the trees toward me. Hardly had I time to get the direction of the trail and its relation to the trees nearby when the storm enfolded me. Of his own accord, Satan stopped in the lee of a bushy spruce. The roar in the pines equaled that of the cave under Niagara, and the bewildering, whirling mass of snow was as difficult to see through as the tumbling, seething waterfall. I was confronted by the possibility of passing the night there, and calming my fears as best I could, hastily felt for my matches and knife. The prospect of being lost the next day in a white forest was also appalling but I soon reassured myself that the storm was only a snow-squall, and would not last long. Then I gave myself up to the pleasure and beauty of it. I could only faintly discern the dim trees, the limbs of the spruce, which partially preceded me, sagged down to my head with their burden. I had but to reach out my hand for a snowball. Both the wind and snow seemed warm. The great flakes were like swan feathers on a summer breeze. There was something joyous in the whirl and snow and roar of wind. While I bent over to shake my holster, the storm passed as suddenly as it had come. When I looked up, there were the pines, like pillars of Parian marble, and a white shadow, a vanishing cloud fled, with receding roar on the wings of the wind. Fast on this retreat burst the warm, bright sun. I faced my course and was delighted to see through an opening where the ravine cut out of the forest the red-tipped peaks of the canyon and the vaulted dome I had named St. Mark's. As I started, a new and an unexpected after-feature of the storm began to manifest itself. The sun being warm, even hot, began to melt the snow, and under the trees a heavy rain fell, and in the glades and hollows fine mist blew. Exquisite rainbows hung from white-tipped branches and curved over the hollows. Glistening patches of snow fell from the pines and broke the showers. In a quarter of an hour I rode out of the forest to the rim wall on dry ground. Against the green pinions Frank's white horse stood out conspicuously, and near him browsed the mounts of Jim and Wallace. The boys were not in evidence. Concluding they had gone down over the rim, I dismounted and kicked off my shafts and, taking my rifle and camera, hurried to look the place over. To my surprise and interest, I found a long succession of rim wall in ruins. It lay in a great curve between the two giant capes, and many short, sharp, projecting promontories, like the teeth of a saw, overhung the canyon. The slopes between these points of cliff were covered with a deep growth of pinion, and in these places descent would be easy. Everywhere in the corrugated wall were rents and rifts. Cliffs stood detached like islands near a shore. Yellow crags rose out of green clefts, jumble of rocks, and slides of rim wall, broken into blocks, massed under their promontories. The singular raggedness and wildness of the scene took hold of me, and was not dispelled until the baying of sounder and dawn roused action in me. Apparently the hounds were widely separated. Then I heard Jim's yell, but it ceased when the wind lulled, and I heard it no more. Running back from the point, I began to go down. The way was steep, almost perpendicular, but because of the great stones and the absence of slides was easy. I took long strides and jumps and slid over rocks and swung on pinion branches, 
and covered distance like a rolling stone. At the foot of the rim wall, or at a line where it would have reached had it extended regularly, the slope became less pronounced. I could stand up without holding on to a support. The largest pinions I had seen made a forest that almost stood on end. These trees grew up, down and out, and twisted in curves, and many were two feet in thickness. During my descent I halted at intervals to listen, and always heard one of the hounds, sometimes several. But as I descended for a long time, and did not get anywhere or approach the dogs, I began to grow impatient. A large pinion with a dead top suggested a good outlook, so I climbed it, and saw I could sweep a large section of the slope. It was a strange thing to look downhill over the tips of green trees. Below perhaps four hundred yards was a slide open for a long way. All the rest was green incline, and with many dead branches sticking up like spears, and an occasional crag. From this perch I heard the hounds, then followed a yell I thought was Jim's, and after it of the bellowing of Wallace's rifle. Then all was silent. The shots had effectually checked the yelping of the hounds. I let out a yell, another cougar that Jones would not lasso. All at once I heard a familiar sliding of small rocks below me, and I watched the open slope with greedy eyes. Not a bit surprised was I to see a cougar break out of the green and go tearing down the slide. In less than six seconds I had sent six steel-jacketed bullets after him. Puffs of dust rose closer and closer to him. Each bullet went nearer the mark, and the last showered him with gravel and turned him straight down the canyon slope. I slid down the dead pinion and jumped nearly twenty feet to the soft sand below, and after putting a loaded clip in my rifle, began kangaroo leaps down the slope. When I reached the point where the cougar had entered the slide, I called the hounds, but they did not come nor answer me. Notwithstanding my excitement, I appreciated the distance to the bottom of the slope before I reached it. In my haste, I ran upon the verge of a precipice, twice as deep as the first rim wall, but one glance down sent me shudderingly backward. With all the breath I had left, I yelled, Wahoo! Wahoo! From the echoes flung at me, I imagined at first that my friends were right on my ears. But no real answer came. The cougar had probably passed along this second rim wall to a break and had gone down. His trail could easily be taken by any of the hounds. Vexed and anxious, I signaled again and again. Once, long after the echo had gone to sleep in some hollow canyon, I caught a faint but it might have come from the clouds. I did not hear a hound barking above me on the slope, but suddenly, to my amazement, Sounder's deep bay rose from the abyss below. I ran along the rim, called till I was hoarse, leaned over so far that the blood rushed to my head, and then sat down. I concluded this canyon hunting could bear some sustained attention and thought, as well as frenzied action. Examination of my position showed how impossible it was to arrive at any clear idea of the depth or size or condition of the canyon slopes from the main rim of wall above. The second wall, a stupendous yellow-faced cliff two thousand feet high, curved to my left round to a point in front of me. The intervening canyon might have been half a mile wide, and it might have been ten miles. I became disgusted with judging distance. The slope above this second wall facing me ran up far above my head. It fairly towered. 
and this routed all my former judgments, because I remembered distinctly that from the rim this yellow and green mountain had appeared an insignificant little ridge. But it was when I turned my gaze up behind me that I fully grasped the immensity of the place. This wall and slope were the first two steps down the long stairway of the Grand Canyon, and they towered over me, straight up a half-mile in dizzying height. To think of climbing it took my breath away. Then again, Sounder's Bay floated distinctly to me, but it seemed to come from a different point. I turned my ear to the wind, and in the succeeding moments I was more and more baffled. One bay sounded from below, and next from far to the right, another from the left. I could not distinguish voice from echo. The acoustic properties of the amphitheater beneath me were too powerful for my comprehension. As the bay grew sharper, and correspondingly more significant, I became distracted and focused a strained vision on the canyon deeps. I lucked along the slope to the notch where the wall curved and followed the baseline of the yellow cliff. Quite suddenly I saw a very small black object moving with snail-like slowness. Although it seemed impossible for Sounder to be so small, I knew it was he. Having something now to judge distance from, I conceived it to be a mile without the drop. If I could hear Sounder, he could hear me. So I yelled encouragement. The echoes clapped back at me like so many slaps in the face. I watched the hound until he disappeared among the broken heaps of stone, and long after that his bay floated to me. Having rested, I essayed the discovery of some of my lost companions or the hounds, and began to climb. Before I started, however, I was wise enough to study the rim wall above, to familiarize myself with the brakes so I would have a landmark. Like horns and spurs of gold, the pinnacles loomed up, massed closely together. They were not unlike an astounding pipe-organ. I had a feeling of my littleness that I was lost, and should devote every moment and effort to the saving of my life. It did not seem possible I could be hunting. Though I climbed diagonally and rested often, my heart pumped so hard I could hear it. A yellow crag with a round head like an old man's cane appeared to me as near the place where I had last heard from Jim, and toward it I labored. Every time I glanced up the distance seemed the same, a climb which I decided would not take more than fifteen minutes required an hour. While resting at the foot of the crag I heard more baying of hounds, but for my life I could not tell whether the sound came from up or down, and I commenced to feel that I did not much care. Having signaled till I was hoarse, and receiving none but mock answers, I decided that if my companions had not toppled over a cliff, they were wisely withholding their breath. Another stiff pull up the slope brought me under the rim wall, and there I groaned because the wall was smooth and shiny without a break. I plodded slowly along the base with my rifle ready. Cougar tracks were so numerous I got tired of looking at them but I did not forget that I might meet a tawny fellow or two along those narrow passages of shattered rock, and under the thick dark pinions. Going on in this way, I ran point-blank into a pile of bleached bones before a cave. I had stumbled on the lair of a lion, and, from the looks of it, one like that of old Tom. I flinched twice before I threw a stone into the dark-mouthed cave. What impressed me, as soon as I found I was in no danger of being pawed, and clawed around the gloomy spot. 
was from the fact of the bones being there. How did they come on a slope where a man could hardly walk? Only one answer seemed feasible. The lion had made his kill one thousand feet above and pulled the quarry to the rim and pushed it over. In view of the theory that he might have had to drag his victim from the forest, and that very seldom two lions worked together, the fact of the location of the bones was startling. Skulls of wild horses and deer, antlers and countless bones, all crushed into shapelessness, furnished the inaudible proof that the carcasses had fallen from a great height. Most remarkable of all was the skeleton of a cougar lying across that of a horse. I believed, I could not help but believe, that the cougar had fallen with his last victim. Not running rods beyond the lion den, the rim wall split into towers, crags, and pinnacles. I thought I had found my pipe organ, and began to climb toward a narrow opening in the rim, but I lost it. The extraordinary cut-up condition of the wall made holding to one direction impossible. Soon I realized I was lost in a labyrinth. I tried to find my way down again, but the best I could do was to reach the verge of a cliff from which I could see the canyon. Then I knew where I was, yet I did not know, so I plodded wearily back. Many a blind cleft did I ascend in the maze of crags. I could hardly crawl along, still I kept at it, for the place was conducive to dire thoughts. A tower of Babel menaced me with tons of loose shale, a tower that leaned more frightfully than the Tower of Pizza, threatened to build my tomb. Many a lighthouse-shaped crag sent down little scattering rocks in ominous notice. After toiling in and out passageways under the shadows of these strangely formed crifts, and coming again and again to the same point, a blind pocket, I grew desperate. I named the baffling place Deception Pass, and then ran down a slide. I knew if I could keep my feet I could beat the avalanche. More by good luck than management, I outran the roaring stones and landed safely. Then rounding the cliff below, I found myself on a narrow ledge, with the wall to my left and to the right the tips of pinion trees level with my feet. Innocently and wearily I passed round a pillar-like corner of wall to come face to face with an old lioness and cubs. I heard the mother snarl, and at the same time her ears went back flat, and she crouched. The same fire of yellow eyes, the same grim, snarling expression so familiar in my mind since old Tom had leaped at me, faced me here. My recent vow of extermination was entirely forgotten, and one frantic spring carried me over the ledge. Crash! I felt the brushing and scratching of branches and saw a green blur. I went down straddling limbs and hit the ground with a thump. Fortunately, I landed mostly on my feet, in sand, and suffered no serious bruise. But I was stunned, and my right arm was numb for a moment. Then I gathered myself together. Instead of being grateful, the ledge had not been on the face of the point sublime, from which I would most assuredly have leaped. I was the angriest man ever let loose in the Grand Canyon. Of course, the cougars were far on their way by that time, and were telling their neighbors about the brave hunter's leap for life. So I devoted myself to further efforts to find an outlet. The niche I had jumped into opened below, as did most of the breaks, and I worked out of it to the base of the rim wall, and tramped a long, long mile before I reached my own trail leading down. 
Resting every five steps, I climbed and climbed. My rifle grew to weigh a ton, my feet were lead, the camera stacked to my shoulder, was the world. Soon climbing meant trapeze work, long reach of arm and pull of weight, high step of foot and spring of body. Where I had slid down with ease, I had to strain and raise myself by sheer muscle. I wore my left glove to tatters and threw it away to put the right one on my left hand. I thought many times I could not make another move. I thought my lungs would burst, but I kept on. When at last I surmounted the rim, I saw Jones and flopped down beside him, and lay panting, dripping, boiling, with scorched feet, aching limbs, and numb chest. I've been here for two hours, he said, and I knew things were happening below, but to climb up that slide would kill me. I'm not young any more, and a steep climb like this takes a young heart. As it was, I had enough work. Look, he called my attention to his trousers. They had been cut to shreds, and his right trouser leg was missing from the knee down. His shin was bloody. Moves took a line along the rim, and I went after him with all my horse could do. I yelled for boys, but they didn't come. Right here it is easy to go down, but below where Moe started this lion, it was impossible to get over the rim. The lion lit straight out of the pinions. I lost ground because of the thick brush and numerous trees. Then Moe's didn't bark often enough. He treated the lion twice. I could tell by the way he opened up and bayed. The rascal coon dog climbed the trees and chased the lion out. That's what Moe's did. I got to an open space and saw him, and was coming up fine when he went down over a hollow which ran into the canyon. My horse tripped and fell, turning clear over with me before he threw me into the brush. Tore my clothes and got this bruise, but wasn't much hurt. My horse is pretty lame. I began a recital of my experience, modestly admitting the incident where I bravely faced an old lioness. Upon consulting my watch, I found I had been almost four hours climbing out. At that moment, Frank poked a red face over the rim. He was in his shirt sleeve, sweating freely, and wore a frown I had never seen before. He puffed like a porpoise, and at first could hardly speak. "'Where were you all?' he panted. "'Say, but maybe this hasn't been a chase.' Jim and Wallace and me went tumbling down after the dogs, each one looking out for this particular dog, and darn me if I didn't believe his lion, too. Don took one oozing down the canyon, with me hot-footing after him, and somewhere he treed that lion right below me, in a box canyon, sort of an offshoot of the second rim, and I couldn't locate him. I blame near killed myself more'n once. Look at my knuckles, barked him sliding down the mile down a smooth wall. I thought once the lion had jumped on, but soon I heard him barking again. All that time I heard Sounder, and once I heard the pup. Jim yelled and somebody was shooting, but I couldn't find nobody or make nobody hear me. That canyon, it is a mighty deceiving place. You'd never think so till you go down. I wouldn't climb up it again for all the lions in buckskin. Hello, here comes Jim oozing up. Jim appeared just over the rim. And when he got up to us, dusty, torn, and fagged out with Don, Teague, and Ranger showing signs of collapse, we all blurted out questions. But Jim took his time. Sure, that canyon is one hell of a place, he began finally. Where was everybody? Teague and the pup went down with me and treat a cougar. 
Yes, they did, and I sat under pinion holding the pup while Tig kept the cougar treed. I yelled and yelled. After about an hour or two, Wallace came pounding down like a giant. It was a sure thing we'd get the cougar, and Wallace was taking his picture when the blame cat jumped. It was embarrassing because he wasn't polite about how he jumped. We scattered some, and when Wallace got his gun, the cougar was humping down the slope, and he was going so fast, and the pinions was so thick, that Wallace couldn't get a fair shot and missed. Teague and the pup was so scared by the shots, they wouldn't take the trail again. I heard someone shoot about a million times, and sure thought the cougar was done for. Wallace went plunging down the slope, and I followed. I couldn't keep up with him. He sure takes long steps, and I lost him. I'm reckoning he went over the second wall. Then I made tracks for the top. Boys, the way you can see and hear things down in that canyon, the way you can't hear and see things is pretty funny. If Wallace went over the second rim wall, will he get back today, we all ask. There, there no telling. We waited, lounged, and slept for three hours, and were beginning to worry about our comrade when he hove in sight eastward along the rim. He walked like a man whose next step would be his last. When he reached us, he fell flat, and lay breathing heavily for a while. Someone once mentioned Israel Putnam's ascent of a hill, he said slowly. With all respect to history and a patriot, I wish to say Putnam never saw a hill. Who's for camp? called out Frank. Five o'clock found us round a bright fire, all casting ravenous eyes at a smoking supper. The smell of the Persian meat would have made a wolf of a vegetarian. I devoured four chops and could not have been counted in the running. Jim opened a can of maple syrup, which he had been saving for a grand occasion, and Frank went him one better with two cans of peaches. How glorious to be hungry, to feel the craving for food, and to be grateful, for to realize that the best of life lies in the daily needs of existence, and to battle for them. Nothing could be stronger than the simple enumeration and statement of the facts of Wallace's experience after he left Jim. He chased the cougar and kept it in sight until it went over the second rim wall. Here he dropped over a precipice, twenty feet high, to alight on a fan-shaped slide which spread toward the bottom. It began to slip and move by jerks and then started off steadily, with an increasing roar. He rode an avalanche for one thousand feet. The jar loosened boulders from the walls. When the slide stopped, Wallace extricated his feet and began to dodge the boulders. He had only time to jump over the large ones or dart to one side out of their way. He dared not run. He had to watch them coming. One huge stone hurled over his head and smashed a pinion tree below. When these had ceased rolling and he had passed down to the red shale, he heard Sounder baying near and knew a cougar had been treed or cornered. Hurtling the stones and dead pinions, Wallace ran a mile down the slope, only to find he had been deceived in the direction. He sheered off to the left. Sounder's elusive bay came up from a deep cleft. Wallace plunged into a pinion, climbed to the ground, skidded down a solid slide to come upon an impassable obstacle in the form of a solid wall of red granite. Sounder appeared and came to him, evidently having given up the chase. Wallace consumed four hours in making the ascent. In the notch of the curve of the second rim wall, he climbed the slippery steps of a waterfall. At one point, if he had not been six feet five inches tall, 
he would have been compelled to attempt retracing his trail, an impossible task. But his height enabled him to reach a root, by which he pulled himself up. Sounder he lassoed Allah Jones and hauled up. At another spot which Sounder climbed, he lassoed a pinion above, and walked up with his feet slipping from under him at every step. The knees of his corduroy trousers were holes, as were the elbows of his coat. The sole of his left boot, which he used most in climbing, was gone, and so was his hat. End of chapter 14